Movies by Minutes, project number five. It's Silverado this time. That's no jive. By Lawrence Kasdan, who wrote the show. Let's settle up now, kids, because here we go. Howdy and welcome back to another episode of the Silverado Minute Podcast. Each week, Movies by Minute hosts examine the 1985 Lawrence Kasdan-directed Western Silverado. One minute of screen time per episode. Hey everybody, it's me, Dean O'Carroll, playwright and author of such plays as Back to the 80s, Star Stars, The Franchise Awakens, and Choose Your Heist, which is a, uh, a comedy about a, uh, a, an art heist that is told in the style of one of those Choose Your Own Adventure books where the audience gets to decide which direction the plot goes next. Oh, folks, what a week this has been. I've had so much fun analyzing these minutes and talking with these guests. I, uh, I don't exactly have a regular guest with me to wrap up the week this time, uh, in the sense that I will be analyzing the minute solo, but I do have a special guest to talk about one of the, uh, the recurring themes that I have brought up uh, over the course of the week. So uh, let's get to that. I'm here with my father, Chris O'Carroll. Now, Dad, something that I've been saying all this week is that people in my generation, um, if we got much in terms of, uh, of Westerns, like pop culture Westerns, it was sort of filtered down probably through our baby boomer parents who, uh, who had so much growing up undone, whether it was TV and, and, and movies and, and other media. Now, I think of you as having been more of a, a science fiction and superhero and like mystery kid but but there were plenty of westerns you know that were part of your childhood right oh yeah growing up probably my favorite one was wild wild west because it introduced comedy with the adventure but uh uh we my brothers and sisters and i used to watch lone ranger every week and uh you know gunsmoke and bonanza were there on tv all the time i wasn't fixated on them the way i was on the lone ranger but maverick was another wonderful western uh, just because james garner's character was playful as well as adventurous but uh the, the lone ranger was an an uber western it, it was like the iconic western in in a lot of ways and um and the Lone Ranger led to one of our, my brother's and my favorite stories from your childhood, which, uh, which we asked you to tell over and over again. We thought it was such a funny story. Yeah, it, uh, I, I still think it's pretty funny, too, even though I ended up being the butt of the joke. Um, my, there was an episode of The Lone Ranger in which Tonto went ahead to check something out. Uh, and as he was walking through the door of a cabin where the bad guy was hiding or something, a sandbag fell off the door. They had booby-trapped the door, and a heavy sandbag fell on him, knocked him out, and he woke up tied up. And uh, my, my brother and I got an idea from that, from that episode. Uh, we, we shared a bed, and we sometimes at bedtime would you know, jump up and down in the bed and play and not lie down and be quiet. And uh, that would lead to our father shouting up the stairs, you boys, quiet down and go to sleep. And sometimes we would. But if we didn't and we went back to jumping up and making noise, uh, dad would come running up the stairs and throw open the door and give us a sort of symbolic swat on the butt. And then we would lie down and go to sleep. Um, so we cooked up an idea that we would do to Dad what the bad guys had done to Tonto. We would get a pillowcase and fill it full of all our biggest, heaviest toys, and we would balance it on the bedroom door. And then when Dad 
came running up the stairs and threw open the door, it would fall on his head and knock him down, and we would uh, jump out the window and run away. Our, our plans got a little hazy after that. I, I don't think we had thoroughly worked out the plot. but, um, And I also don't think we... Uh, were as surreptitious about the plot as really clever conspirators would have been. I think Dad heard us talking about it and knew what was going on because one evening, uh, Dad said to me, uh, run upstairs and get your pajamas from your bedroom, would you? So I ran upstairs, I threw open the, the bedroom door, and about 9,000 rolls of toilet paper that my father had piled on top of the door came raining down on my head. Uh, better than having a, a pillowcase full of heavy toys. <laughs> I went downstairs and looked at my father like you got me, and he, he said, wait here, uh, your, your brother will be here soon. And he went back upstairs to re-rig the trap for... Uh, for, for my brother. And I, I guess the moral of the story is, yes, TV violence does lead to violence in real life. And B, don't mess with your dad. He'll probably outwit you. Yes, yeah. Uh, yes, a lesson that we all get to pass up to the next generation in one vengeful way or the other. Well, thank you. I'm so glad I got to include this, uh, uh, that, that favorite story from my youth about your youth uh, on this week. Um, oh, hey, if people wanted to buy some good poetry books, wh where would they look? Um, my uh, two books are called The Jokes on Me and Abracadabratude, because, you know, any hat can use a real word as a title. Yeah. And those, uh, you, you can uh, Google either of those book titles. The, uh, the publisher is White Violet Press. You can Google my name, Chris O'Carroll, with two R's and two L's. And, uh, hey, if you are into uh, comic poetry, you, you might... I, I have to admit, there is no poem in either collection about uh, trying to uh, booby-trap my father. Uh, I haven't yet gotten around to writing a poem on that. Who knows if I will one day? Hey, yes, yeah. This, you know, <laughs> you know, th there's one for the threequel. All right, thanks very much. <laughs> yes, that, uh, that story was definitely a favorite, and I do remember getting the toilet paper over-the-door treatment at least once in my childhood as well. There was another family story that my father would tell every Halloween as he was carving our pumpkin, uh, which was about his grandfather working in a fort in the Old West and being on guard duty during a big harvest festival, so he was the only one who couldn't be at the party. Instead, he had to stand on the roof with just his whittling knife and some pumpkins for company. And then a, a, a gang of banditos started riding up to attack the fort, and uh, it was too loud below for him to warn the, uh, the rest of the fort, so he had to quickly uh, invent the jack-o'-lantern by uh, carving a demon face into a pumpkin and, uh, and lighting it uh, so that the, uh, the attacking uh, criminals would think that there was some sort of giant fire-faced demon uh, guarding the, uh, the fort. And uh, so that was the story of how my great-grandfather invented Halloween, which I now tell to my own children as, uh, as we are carving uh, our pumpkins uh, every October. But other than those stories, my brother and I were not especially into cowboys or western stuff. Though we did have some of the stuff, I, maybe we had some cowboy hats, we certainly had cap guns, you know, where you load a little strip of gunpowder pellets so they, uh, they do make a little explosion sounds. We thought those were kind of fun, but uh, those did not turn into elaborate sort of western or, or, or cowboy adventure stories that we were making up. My grandfather, uh, as we established, also a, a western fan, I know that when he was babysitting one of my younger cousins, um, my younger cousin was very into uh, the Toy Story movies, and uh, but he loved Buzz Lightyear and, and did not find uh, Woody all that interesting. So my grandfather took it upon himself to educate him about westerns and, and Lone Ranger in particular. So they would play Lone Ranger and Tonto um, during those uh, those babysitting playdates. 
And uh, I took my own kids recently to see the Buzz Lightyear spinoff movie, uh, Lightyear, and uh, which takes you know the basic premise of the character the toy is based on, gives him his own movie. And I asked my kids if they thought that would work for the Woody character too. Could you have a uh, a Woody the Cowboy movie that was like a sort of serious animated western uh, about sort of the mythos of of Woody and his supporting cast? Um, and my kids did not think that would be an appealing idea. But then again, Lightyear was only okay, so who knows. But I guess my point is that as a kid, I felt some degree of obligation to be into cowboys and the Western as a genre because it just seemed like that's something you were supposed to be into if you were a boy in particular. And my kids do not have uh, have those uh, inclinations at all. They do not uh, feel any sense of obligation there, uh, which is probably a good thing. But you know what? That could change any minute. If Disney puts out a really fun Big Thunder Mountain Railroad movie sometime in the next couple of years, then that could do for Cowboys and Westerns what uh, the Pirates of the Caribbean movies did for Pirates. No kids was playing Pirates before 2003. But uh, all of a sudden, bam, they're, uh, they're popular. So who knows what uh, the future holds in terms of uh, Westerns for uh, Generation Alpha. But on to minute 115 of Silverado, which begins with Cobb walking down the stairs of the sheriff's office and ends with Slick asking Cobb if he has seen Stella. Let's talk a little bit about Brian Dennehy. Brian Dennehy is an actor who I, I've certainly seen in a million things, and uh, I don't know if I really came to appreciate how truly great he was until relatively recently. Um, I definitely remember seeing him and stuff and sort of filing him in with sort of a class of, of, uh, of other sort of heavyset, middle-aged character actors. And uh, maybe the first inkling that I got that he was uh, maybe something a little more special than sort of the, the run-of-the-mill uh, of that type was on that very strange 20th season of Saturday Night Live when Janine Garofalo was a cast member and Chris Elliott and just a few people who had... It wasn't really clicking or, or working uh, all that well. They did one episode where John Goodman and Dan Aykroyd sort of hosted together. I think this was a little bit before their, uh, their Blues Brothers sequel came out, but they were already sort of teaming up as, like, the new Blues Brothers and they did a uh, one of the uh, DeBear sketches, one of the Superfans sketches. And Mike Myers had already left the show by that point, so John Goodman played his part, and they explained that uh, the character had uh, had put on a lot of weight, I think, after Mike Ditka left the Bears. So uh, so he was there, and, uh, of course, George Wendt and Chris Farley were uh, were in the sketches. They always were. And they, uh, they had Dan Aykroyd uh, come in playing one of his old characters, Irving Mainway, uh, to do a bit. Um, and then, uh, so it's a bunch of, like, really big guys, uh, in the sketch. And then at the end, uh, for no particular reason, Brian Dennehy walks on saying, Hi, I'm Brian Dennehy. I don't really have a role in this sketch. I just wanted to break the record for most fat guys in one sketch. So, uh, I admired him for, uh, for doing that, for being, uh, uh, so comfortable in his own skin. And, uh, and, and now as I am, uh, older and, uh, more of a heavyset guy myself, I perhaps admire that even more. I got to see Brian Dennehy on stage perform the role of Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman. He won a Tony for it on Broadway, and I did not get to see it when I was in New York, but I did catch it on tour in St. Louis when I was living near there. 
and it was a really remarkable performance. You don't necessarily think that a you know, sort of a large man would be Willie Loman. You think of Willie Loman and maybe a sort of a, a physically small man, but it was a, a really remarkable performance. And then the last thing that really hit home for me about how truly great Brian Dennehy was was uh, a story that Patton Oswalt tells on one of his albums about uh, going to a premiere and uh, a party after a, a movie premiere and there's so much incredible food there and none of the uh, the actors there were eating it because they were all, you know, very uh, trying to stay thin and, and trim and, uh, and movie star beautiful. And then he bumps into Brian Dennehy and uh, they have a conversation. He's very inspiring to him. And the way that Pat Nelson tells you is like, hey, you know, you, uh, you, you have a good luck with that career there, Slugger. I, I, I don't imagine he actually called him Slugger. Um, and then uh, so Patton is the thing, you know what, I am going to focus on my career. I'm not going to eat any of this food. I'm going to try to, to lose weight and uh, be you know, thin and, and beautiful like all these people so I can be a movie actor too. And then uh, after about five minutes of this, completely abandons that and, and starts uh, you know, e eating all the food. And then he comes up to him and <laughs> like grabs a burger off his plate and says, hey, character actors, who gives an F if we're fat? So it's a real treat to see him uh, uh, just knocking out of the park in this movie. So he walks on down the stairs, and uh, then he is joined by uh, Jeff Fahey as Tyree. Jeff Fahey is an actor who I think, like a lot of people have been saying, I probably know best as the uh, the airline pilot on the show Lost. But I know he'd been in a lot of other stuff, including Lawnmower Man and so on. But I, I knew him as that sort of like more sort of grizzled, rugged-looking uh, pilot that he played with, you know, with sort of a bit of a, a hippie vibe to him, too. So seeing him here as a, as a young man, and, and, you know, very, very, very beautiful young man, um, though, uh, though dangerous and, and scary and as, as Tyree was, uh, was interesting for me. Tyree says, I'm going to enjoy this. And, uh, Cobb says, this used to be a peaceful town, which is an interesting, uh, you could read a lot into that about, uh, sort of, you know, peace versus freedom and, uh, what happens when the people who are nominally supposed to be keeping the peace are actually dangerous psychopaths. Uh, yes, I'm sure that has absolutely no relevance to our uh, our modern-day life, uh, this silly old Western story. So Tyree goes off to go and, uh, and, and be dangerous and psychopathic, and the uh, the shopkeeper from the previous minute who chose the worst possible time to uh, set up his display of China comes over and says, uh, hey, what's going on? <laughs> and, and Cobb tells him, hide and watch. Then uh, he uh, walks uh, towards the action, I guess, uh, very uh, much towards the camera as well, uh, giving us a nice view of his sheriff's badge. I don't know how common the character of the corrupt sheriff would have been in sort of a classic Western uh, of the, uh, the the earlier days of Hollywood, or if uh, if this is more of a uh, sort of you know, post uh, post Watergate, post don't trust anyone over thirty. Uh, kind of way of, of looking at authority figures that uh, that uh, the sheriff is not the, uh, the the white hat keeping the town safe, but rather the uh, um, the corrupt thug who is uh, preventing it from uh, being truly free. We then cut to the streets of the town, and Dusty, and I think it was required by law that every Western has a character named Dusty in it. Anyway, he is riding down the street. And then he parks his horse. Uh, that's probably not the uh, right term, but he uh, he does uh, uh, wrap his horse's reins around uh, a, a post, and then climbs up the side of the hotel to get up on the roof of the porch and take a position behind the sign with a rifle. Why it is easier or uh, wiser for him to do that rather than just 
going into the hotel and then coming out a window, I'm not entirely certain, but uh, I suppose it, it would be uh, a bit less exciting that way. Then uh, riding on down the street comes Ethan McKendrick, who I have consistently this week called McKittrick. Um, his name is in fact McKendrick and not McKittrick. And uh, McKittrick was uh, uh, one of my professors in grad school and a very nice guy, and I liked him a lot. So uh, I don't know why I uh, keep it insisting that uh, the villain shares his name. Around about this time, the townsfolk seem to have realized that they are all of a sudden in the third act of a Western, and things are about to get dangerous and bloody, and so they go running for cover. And the minute ends with uh, Cobb and Slick coming together, and Cobb asking any sign of Stella. I think I might have said earlier that Slick said that, but uh, I believe it is actually Cobb, though it's uh, a little hard to tell because it's shot from a bit of a distance. Um, glad that I got at least a glimpse of Jeff Goldblum in this movie because uh, it is so uh, wacky and wonderful to see him in a Western. Uh, definitely not uh, an actor you would associate with, uh, with such a thing, but... Uh, but I'm, I'm happy to have him here. And as we learned from Mr. Bergstrom in the classic Simpsons episode, Lisa's Substitute, there were a few Jewish cowboys, uh, big men who spent money freely. Now, um, uh, it's funny. Uh, we keep using the word cowboy in this uh, sort of interchangeably with, uh, we say this is a cowboy movie, we say this is a Western movie. And something that I, I only realized fairly late in the game on this is that the actual cowboys here, the actual people who are involved in the uh, in ranching and driving cattle, are the bad guys in this. Uh, that it's uh, sort of big corporate cowboying is the villain in this piece, uh, and it's the uh, the people who want to have more of a sort of uh, uh, well, urban seems kind of a silly way to put it, but the people who want to live in a town and have uh, you know shops and businesses and so on. Um, have a bit more of uh, uh, what they might have called civilization are the good guys, uh, whereas the uh, the people who are uh, actually you know uh, uh, punching cows, as uh, uh, as they say, are uh, are the villains here. And well, folks, that is the end of this minute. So it is about time for me to hang up my spurs and ride off into the sunset. Though I, I suppose that if I'm going to be writing, I probably still want to have the spurs on. I don't know. I'm not really going to do that. I'm just going to go back to sitting in coffee shops and libraries writing plays. But I have had such a great time this week. I really do appreciate uh, this opportunity to be with you and to discuss this very enjoyable movie. And uh, I get to talk to some friends. If, uh, if you enjoyed some of the voices that you heard this week, you might want to check out a, uh, an audio play that I wrote a little while ago to, that is a parody of uh, Tiger King. It's called Unicorn King, Merther, Magic, and Mayhap Mayhem. So if you did a search on YouTube or SoundCloud for Unicorn King, Merther, M-U-R-T-H-E-R, because it's old-timey, uh, you uh, would uh, find a pretty amusing uh, audio play that, uh, that has some familiar voices in here and uh, maybe some other voices you uh, might know from... Uh, films and television. Otherwise, if you are interested in me for some reason, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Dean O'Carroll or on Instagram, uh, Dean O'Carroll Plays. My, uh, my published plays are published by places like Playscripts, Youth Plays, Hoyer Publishing, and Brooklyn Publishers, all of whom are pretty Googleable. 
But I certainly hope that you are going to stay with this podcast as it uh, charges into its big action conclusion. Uh, remember, you can find the Silverado Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play, or over at the main site, SilveradoMinute.com. Uh, social media, you can check out the Midnight Star, the Silverado Minute Listener Saloon on Facebook. Uh, over on Twitter, it is Silverado MXM. Um, and also, by the way, there are hundreds of other Movies by Minute podcasts that you can find at MoviesByMinutes.com and uh, enjoy this uh, very distinct way of looking at the movie experience one minute at a time. So folks, please, please join us here next time on Silverado Minute. Yee-haw. <laughs>